0: morning. Let's take our Bibles and turn back to Hebrews chapter 12. As we were singing that last verse, I was um, reminded of the before we came to church this morning, I was listening to, on Jordan's stormy banks I stand, and I was, uh, my attention caught by the the first line, on Jordan's stormy banks I stand and cast a wishful eye to Canaan's fair and happy land where my possessions lie. I was thinking about that line this morning. May I reach heaven's joys where our, our true possessions lie. Hebrews chapter 12, Hebrews has, Hebrews 12 has become familiar to us because it provides some of the most important teachings about worship in all of the Bible. Um, it tells us that worship through Christ is not like the worship of Israel under the Old Covenant. It tells us that in Christ we have a, a joyful, vibrant relationship with God, and, and in a spiritual sense, you're already in heaven. You are already a, a, a full part of God's heavenly family, His kingdom, his worshipers. And so that's in Hebrews twelve twenty two through 24. But then God's Word takes a sober turn in verse 25. See that you do not refuse Him who is speaking. And then as the chapter ends in verses 28 and 29, therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So I was assigned my topic for this morning's sermon. Uh, I mean, I assigned the topic to myself a few months ago when we laid out the plan uh, for this series on, on gathered worship, but uh, this is our second to last sermon. Next Sunday is the, the sermon from Revelation. And so the assigned topic this morning was the dangers of gathered worship. And so then I saw the topic I had assigned to myself and said, I don't know what to do with that. Uh, How do you think about dangers of worship? Um, So it's been an interesting wrestling uh, this week. Um, But from what we just read there in Hebrews 12, 25, 28, 29 you can see that it is appropriate to take a sober look at worship. It is appropriate to talk about the possible dangers because if God is a consuming fire, then his worship is not something to be taken lightly. So let's pray for the Lord's help this morning. And then um, I'm going to list and just kind of briefly describe some of the most most common most important passages about the dangers of worship let 's pray first though our father uh, we only truly know you through your word we only truly know worship and and how we can honor you uh, through your word, so teach us and I pray that even as we navigate some things that are a little bit tricky this morning um, that your Spirit, through the Word, might actually make those things clear in a way that would press upon hearts very meaningfully and result in fruit a hundredfold for your glory. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let me just just talk through some of the, some of the main passages. Um, Some of them we've seen previously in this series. So, uh, start with Genesis chapter 4. Cain and Abel both brought sacrifices to the Lord. They're worshiping, right? But Cain and his sacrifice are rejected by God, and the whole rest of his life is this uh, trajectory that comes from that. Exodus chapter 32. Uh, Back in Exodus 18, 19, 20, God visited Israel at Mount Sinai. His glory was manifested. God spoke, and Israel entered into a covenant to be God's people. But then they very quickly, within six weeks, they became impatient and fearful and unbelieving and disobedient. And so they took the gold that God had provided for them from the Egyptians, and they made a metal cow, and they had a big wild worship party. What God said first he was considering doing was destroying the entire nation, though in the end, he only took the lives of 3,000 of them. Leviticus chapter 10, Nadab and Abihu came to the tabernacle with an incense offering for the Lord, and it says that they did it with unauthorized fire. So somehow they were ignoring God's instructions for that offering, and God burned them up right there. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, there was a man named Uzzah who grabbed hold of the ark. That's the, the box that had the atoning lid. Sometimes it's called the mercy seat with the angels on top of it where God manifested his presence in the tabernacle. And they were moving it, but they were not moving it as they were supposed to. And it was going to fall, and Uzzah grabbed hold of it, and God took his life. First Kings chapter 22 tells us about King Jeroboam. And Jeroboam was a wily politician who was afraid. The nation of Israel had split. He was king of the new northern part of the nation of Israel. That was a very tenuous, shaky situation. He needed to grab power however he could, and he had a big problem. All the people in his kingdom were supposed to go down into the other kingdom to worship God. And he knew that was going to be no good. So he just decided he could reinvent worship himself. So he made new gods. He made new places to worship those gods. And many kings of Israel after him are said to have followed in the steps of Jeroboam and his evil. And in the end, when the northern kingdom was captured and taken into captivity by the Assyrians, it's blamed on Jeroboam, who thought he could just make up God's worship however he wanted. In Isaiah chapter 1... God said to Israel, and I'm just summarizing a longer section, but He said, I've had enough of your offerings. I don't care about your sacrifices. Your incense is an abomination. I hate your feasts. You're trampling my courts when you come to worship. And so God said He would not listen to them, no matter how much He pled with them. Acts chapter 5, we read the story of Ananias and Sapphira, who, what the text says is, they contrived their worship. They lied to the church. They lied to the Holy Spirit by putting on a show of worship, and they fell down dead on the spot. So, these are some passages that illustrate the dangers of worship. So, should you then hear those things and conclude? worship is dangerous. If I don't do everything just right, God is going to strike me dead. And the answer to that is no. That would not be the right conclusion at all for a New Testament Christian, hearing those passages. Why is that? Well, I'm going to give you a few reasons. First of all, Because many of those passages are about blatant violations of Old Covenant worship laws. But Hebrews chapter 12 tells us we don't relate to God through Mount Sinai and the law any longer. We've come to the heavenly mountain, to a great celebration at the throne of God, and to the blood of Jesus that speaks on our behalf to welcome us into God's presence and into God's worship. Hebrews 7 says that a former commandment is set aside, a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. It says that Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. Hebrews chapter 8 says that Jesus, says that it's talking about a new covenant, and it says that Jesus makes the first one obsolete because he has enacted a better covenant that is built on better promises, Hebrews 10 says that the law was a shadow, but a shadow of the good things to come. And so Hebrews 10, 19 says, Therefore, brothers, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. Though in chapter 12, he says that it's still with awe and reverence. You see that combination? Awe and reverence, but confidence. So, many of those passages that I described earlier were about violations of Old Covenant worship laws, and your relationship with God is not based on Old Covenant worship laws, but on Christ. Something else we should observe about those passages, and this is something that we'll loop back to at the end of our sermon this morning, but some of those people involved in those passages were just unbelievers. Now, sometimes they were Jews, But remember what Paul says in Romans, that Jews without faith are not truly the people of God. And so unbelieving Jews were not God's people in the true saving sense. The New Testament says that Cain was an evil man without faith. Jeroboam was an evil man. Jesus, boy, did he go after worship, didn't he? (laughs) Jesus blasted the Jewish leaders of his day and their worship, and he told them, you guys are like, on the inside, you're like a grave with a rotting body in it, and you've got this beautiful tombstone above it. The outside, your worship looks so good, and you're just dead rotting stuff on the inside. You're spiritually dead. Ananias and Sapphira were fakes. They were contriving it. Their worship was a lie. So we should not hear those passages and conclude that worship is actually dangerous because if we don't do everything exactly right, God's going God's to gonna strike you dead. If you look carefully at the context of all those stories, you'll see that is not the case. Now, we can learn from those passages and be sobered by them. And again, I'll come back at the end to what I think is the most important theme from them. But do not conclude that God is impossible to please and worship is really risky. In Christ, that is not true. The blood of Christ always speaks for us. Christ, our advocate, always stands with us. And the Spirit of God is right here within us. Christ is a perfect worshiper who is perfectly pleasing to God. And you're united with him, remember? United with the perfect worshiper. And so we stand in grace, and there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that means you While you worship with reverence and awe, you can worship with peace and joy. It's not this scary thing. Okay? That's just introduction. Now, turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. So as we come to worship, we do not come afraid because of Christ. However, there is still a sense in which we need to watch for dangers, our hearts are prone to wander, and we can easily slip into comfortable tradition or gratifying our flesh or trying to appeal to the world. It is easy... <laughs> I, 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 said to, I said to Pastor John this morning, I said, remember, we're, we're all sheepy. <laughs> we're sheep. And that means we're sheepy. And what does sheep do? Grrrr. <laughs> Okay, So we do have to be aware in worship. We do have to say, okay, wait a second. Is my heart wandering off of what is biblical and healthy? Alert, not because God is harsh or hard to please, but because we love Him and we want to honor Him and we're humbly aware of how sheepy we are and how foolish we can be. So, in in other words, what I'm saying is we consider the dangers not out of dread, but out of love for God. So let's consider two of those categories that we might watch for, and I've uh, just divided it really simply. Dangers for the church as a whole as we gather, and then dangers as for me, for each of you as individuals, when we gather as a church family. So we'll begin with the dangers for the church as a whole, and let's read Revelation 2, verses 1 through 6. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of Him who holds the seven stars in His right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. And that is Jesus. That's referring back to chapter 1. So these are the words of Jesus to this church in Ephesus. Verse 2, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false." I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. So that's good, right? These were genuine believers who were genuinely seeking to honor the Lord. Verse 4, But I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first, If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Okay, so I've brought us to this passage because of verse 5. And that sentence in verse 5 that says, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. What does that mean? Well, look back up at the last words in chapter 1, so the end of Revelation 1, verse 20. What do the seven lampstands in this vision represent, according to the end of chapter 1? The lampstands are the churches. They're the seven churches. So then, the beginning of chapter 2 says that this message is from Jesus to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Now, some, things, some people think this is an angel who supports the church in ephesus or represents that church others think it's referring to the pastor of that church either way the message is from jesus for that church and so jesus says to this church in verse 4 you have abandoned the love you had at first and in verse 5 repent or i will remove your lampstand from its place okay so the lampstands represent churches And Jesus says to this church, repent or I will remove your lampstand from its place. Okay, so that means every local church is a lampstand from God put in a particular place so that the people of that church family can shine for him in that place. And the genuine Christians in every local church will live forever. They have eternal life, right? You cannot... Bring them to an end. But local churches themselves don't last forever. Some last three months. (laughs) Some last a year or two. Some last 200 years. But none of them last forever. This passage tells us that God sometimes closes local churches because they've gotten off track. He removes the lampstand from its place. That, have you ever thought about this? Some churches need to die. Some local churches need to have the lampstand removed from the place because it's so unhealthy. Now, does God always remove the lampstand of every unhealthy church? Can you say, well, that church must be healthy, it's still there? No, he doesn't. And so we don't know the mysteries of God's will. But what we do know is that right now, in God's mercy, Grace Bible Church is a lampstand placed by God in Marietta, California, and he hasn't removed our lampstand yet. And so we can pray, dear Lord, would you help keep us faithful to you? Because we really don't want to be the kind of church that you need to get rid of. We would love to be a healthy church a faithful church. So, what then are some dangers that we should be aware of as a church when it comes to worship? And I may be oversimplifying, but it seems like we could probably boil the dangers down to this one essential. The primary worship danger for a local church is any type of man-centered worship. Two reasons for that conclusion. First of all, as I worked through all the various worship dangers that I could think through biblically, all of them came back to this. They seemed like they were all just subcategories of this, of of man-centered worship. But but that also, like, theologically, that makes perfectly good sense. Because as we've learned from Romans chapter 1, humanity's foundational problem is that we worship created things, especially ourselves, instead of worshiping God. And so it's not a surprise that our tendency in worship is to move God out of the way and to move ourselves into the center of worship. So I think the primary worship danger for a local church is any type of man-centered worship. So here are six examples. More could be added to this list, and some of these overlap, but number one is individualism. This would mean that even though we're all gathering together, we've come for a private worship experience. We happen to be in the same room as other people, but it's like going to watch a movie. At a movie, you're in the same room with other people, but you're not there for those people. And frankly, you hope they just don't bother your movie experience. And that's okay at a movie or a game or a concert, but that's not okay in gathered worship. We've seen this in First Corinthians chapter 11, where Paul rebuked that church for how they took the Lord's Supper in a totally individual way with no thought for one another. And in 1 Corinthians 14, when Paul had to confront them because they were worshiping in a way that only benefited themselves, it didn't build up other people. So individualism is dangerous. Similarly, consumerism. I really dislike the number of companies that say to me, uh, you know, through the ads and whatever, that they exist for me. Everything's all about me. They are only here because of me. So what happens if we bring that over to gathered worship and we think about worship as consumers? And so the church is like a business and the church's job is to make people happy. The church had better provide what the consumers want. Worship had better make me happy because the customer is always right right? That would be the danger from the mentality of the people coming, a consumer mentality. Do you have what I want? Can you give me what I want? But from the church side, the danger is that church leadership begins to craft worship to appeal to the worship consumer. How can we keep the customers happy? That is dangerously man-centered because it's not really worship at all. It's just business, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4, Paul says, We speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. In Galatians 1.10, For am I now seeking the approval of God or of man, or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. It is impossible for a church leadership team to approach worship with a consumer, business-driven mentality and serve Christ. You cannot do it. So, that's number two. Now, consumerism can easily lead to, number three, pragmatism. Do whatever works. Worship in a way that works. And, of course, the question then is, works for what? Works to get the most people through the door? Works to get the most donations? Works to get the most five-star reviews? works to pay off the big mortgage, works to feed the ego of the pastor. It's interesting that Peter says to pastors in 1 Peter 5, 2, "'Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, not for shameful gain.'" Churches and leaders can use worship for shameful gain. But 1 Corinthians 4, 2 says, "'It is required of stewards that they be found faithful.'" don't do whatever works, do whatever is faithful. So, can you see how individualism, consumerism, pragmatism, all these things place man at the center? Worship has now moved man to the center instead of God. And all those things can lead to number four, which is contrived worship. This means that a church starts to learn how to combine elements in a worship service so that people really feel like they have a worship experience that they like. There are some people in our church who bake, and uh, some of you are known for a specialty where you've really just kind of perfected that recipe. Maybe you've even got a secret ingredient that you won't tell any of the rest of us. But you know that if you use these ingredients and these measurements and these times, and you're going to really please the crowd with your cookies or cheesecake or pastry or whatever it is. Now, please, don't stop doing that. Keep pleasing the crowd. Uh, We're very appreciative of that. But if we treat gathered worship like that, we've got a big problem. If we start saying, we've perfected this worship thing, this worship recipe, We know that if we do it just like this, people will love it. Now we are contriving a worship experience, but we're not worshiping. Because John 4.24, as we've already learned, true worship is in spirit and in truth. True worship only comes from the hearts of people who are alive by the Spirit of God and are being led by the Spirit of God to worship Him as they respond to the truth about Jesus. Jesus. It's worship in spirit and in truth. It's not something contrived. So contriving a worship experience is a great danger. And then that, all those things can also connect to number five, which is worldly worship. Right after Paul urges us in Romans 12, right after he urges us to present our bodies to God as a living sacrifice, which is our worship, he says, he then says, don't be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Now, he's talking about us as individuals, but the principle also applies to us when we gather as a church. 2 Corinthians 6 and 7, Paul says that since the church is the temple of God, we have to be separate from whatever is unclean and defiling in the world. So, every local church is located within a culture. And in that culture, there are good elements. There are things that come from God's common grace. And so, every church takes advantage of the blessings of their culture. For example, we have a piano. And and Jesus had a piano. The early church had pianos. That's why we have a piano, because that's not true at all, right? This was a cultural development, as was that particular form of guitar over there. Those were cultural developments that we are very grateful for, but Churches did not have pianos for the first 1,300 years or 1,400 years or probably well beyond that till they could afford them. We have air conditioning. We have computers and cameras that sometimes work. Uh, we honor moms on Mother's Day. We play ultimate Frisbee on park nights. Christians in 8,100 didn't have live streams, and they didn't play ultimate Frisbee on park nights. These are all cultural accommodations taking advantage of good aspects of our culture, and this happens all over the world. Churches in Togo oftentimes have these beautiful African fabrics hanging from their walls. That's a cultural accommodation. But there are other parts of every culture that are not healthy and are not God-honoring. In the words of Tim Keller, we have to Avoid the excesses and distorted sinful elements of the particular surrounding culture. Now, that gets controversial, I realize, but that's not our point this morning. The point is that those things should not be brought into gathered worship, even if they make people happy and please the crowd and gratify the flesh. This directly connects to our discussion a few weeks ago about worship as a holy people, um, James says that friendship with the world is enmity with God. John said don't love the world or the things that are in the world. So I, like, I appreciate this illustration from Matt Merker. He, uh, he was at Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. for several years, and he, he says one time he was riding his bike near RFK Stadium when there was a, a soccer game, and one of the teams was from Honduras. And he says hundreds of their tailgating fans filled the parking lot Flags flew, music blasted, meat sizzled on the grill. It wasn't an official Honduran outpost, but it seemed that way. A beautifully distinct group of people on foreign soil. Gathered worship should be like that. A beautifully distinct group of people on foreign soil. An unsaved person should look at gathered worship and see something distinct. It should be... More like a little taste of heaven rather than just a dose of earth. It should bear the image of God more than it bears the image of the world. A beautifully distinct group of people on foreign soil. And then finally, comfortable worship is also dangerous. And of course, I don't mean that we should turn off the air conditioners and, you know, the more we sweat, the more godly we are in our worship or something like that. I'm talking about when we just hold on to what's comfortable, and we just stay in our comfort zone, our preferences, even if it really isn't a healthy way to please the Lord and gather worship. Jesus said over and over again to the Jewish leadership, Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Now, I realize that Jesus wasn't talking about gathered worship of a New Testament church, but it does caution us about holding on to what's comfortable for us, even if those traditions don't actually worship the Lord well or serve the church family well. Just... Sitting in our worship comfort zone, unwilling to evaluate whether it's healthy or not, is man-centered, right? I've put my comfort at the center of what worship is about. So that, too, is dangerous. Okay, so we've listed six examples of of man-centered worship as a gathered church. In each of these things, we can see that God is pushed to the side, man is placed at the center, so that the highest priority becomes the individual's experience or the consumer's approval or the church's financial gain or the personal worship experience of the attendees or the gratification of their flesh or their comfort zone. The point is that it's all about the worshipers, which makes it idolatry. The, 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 the topic of the worship may be God, but the actual center of the worship is man, which is idolatry, instead of worship. So God would be right to remove that lampstand from its place if that church would not repent and return to biblical worship. So I believe that's the greatest danger as a church. And the solution to that danger is everything we've studied for the last several months, a biblical understanding of worship, what worship truly is, who gathers for worship, what characterizes true worship, And then when we gather, what are the biblical purposes and the biblical focus and the biblical elements? If we just stay anchored in the Bible and focused on God, um, He's going to remain in the center rather than us. Okay, so let's move on to consider the individual dangers when we gather to worship. As you gather with your church family, what are the the greatest dangers? And again, at the risk of oversimplifying, I'm going to boil it down to just a really brief answer. The primary worship danger for the individual is... No-hearted worship, and I know no-hearted is not a thing, but we've talked about whole-hearted worship, and our point in that sermon was that we don't want to be half-hearted worshipers. We want to be whole-hearted worshipers. But the great danger in individual worship is actually no-hearted worship. So would you turn with me to Mark chapter 7? Half-hearted worship is a problem, and I'm going to talk about that more in a few minutes. But the great danger is no hearted worship. Mark chapter 7, verse 1, Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. So in verse 6, their heart is far from me which is a way of saying it was worship without heart. And remember, we learned a few weeks ago that the Bible word heart is not just referring to our emotions, but to our whole inner man. So it's not just that their emotions weren't in it, but their entire being wasn't in it. They, they had something to gain from worship, but they didn't actually care about God. And in verse 6, Jesus calls them what? What's the word? Hypocrites, you hypocrites. That Greek word was used in a literal sense for play-acting. So with all of their washing and their other worship ceremonies, they were play-acting a heart for God, though they had no heart for God. Now, all Christians struggle with play-acting true? All Christians struggle with play acting. At some time, it crosses your mind, I wonder what somebody else is thinking about this prayer I'm praying. And then hopefully you're like, ah, why did I just think that? I wonder what the person in front of me is thinking about how I sound as I sing this. I wonder if they notice that I... right. All Christians struggle with play-acting. We sometimes give in to the temptation to put something on for others to see, to try to make ourselves look spiritual. But a hypocrite only play-acts. There is nothing real. There is nothing genuine in his heart. His Christianity is just an act. And that is dangerous because, as verse 7 says, in vain Do they worship me? Wash all you want. It's empty. It's meaningless. It's not worship. And it's dangerous for their souls because they're using their worship to pat themselves on the back. They say, why do your disciples eat with those defiled hands? Because we would not do that. We are so good in our worship. And so as they pat themselves on the back about how spiritual are, they are, they are deceived. Their soul is in eternal danger because they have no relationship with God, though they're doing all this worship stuff. Think back again to that story of Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel brought different types of sacrifices to God. And we might look at that and say, ah, that's the problem. Cain made a little mistake. He didn't do it exactly right. And so God zapped him. But go look at that story and the whole story in Genesis 4 and then look up Cain and Abel in the New Testament and it becomes clear the problem was not that Cain made a little worship mistake. The problem was that Cain had no heart for God. He was not a worshiper. If Cain actually had a heart for God, he could have made a mistake with his sacrifice and it would have been okay, especially in Christ. God is gracious, and God is patient, and God is a tender Father. He's not waiting to pounce on worshipers if they make any little mistake. The problem was that Cain had no heart for God. He was a no-hearted worshiper. And that was the same thing with so many of the Jewish leaders in Jesus' day. That's why Jesus told Nicodemus, a very religious man, he said, you have to be born again. Nicodemus, you are very religious, but you must be born again. Otherwise, your worship has no heart. It is in vain, and your soul is in danger. So, here's the bottom line. If the greatest danger for the individual is no-hearted worship, then that means that if you've been born again, Worship is not dangerous for you. You see what I'm saying? If the great danger is no hearted worship, then if you've been born again and God has made your heart new and alive in Christ, then worship is not dangerous for you in Christ. So, how do you know if you've been born again? Well, let me just ask you a series of questions. Have you humbly recognized your own sin, your guilt before God, and the impossibility of paying the the price for your own sin, the consequences of your own sin? Do you believe the Bible and what the Bible says about the death of Jesus on the cross, that he died as a substitute in your place for your sin, to take the penalty for your sin? And do you believe what the Bible says about the resurrection of Jesus? That he actually, in his body, rose from the dead, defeating death and making eternal life available for you? And do you understand that Jesus said, repent and believe the good news? Repentance is that heart that says, oh man, I have sinned against God. I am guilty. I do not want to live in rebellion against God. Repent and believe. Believe the good news of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And you understand then that to come to Jesus for salvation is to come to the true king. And so it's not just to grab a ticket that will get me into heaven and then go on ignoring Jesus, but it really is to give your life to Jesus, to come become one of his followers as he forgives you and makes you God's child. And so we just talk to God in prayer we confess our sinfulness. Jesus' Jesus words it as, coming to him. Those who come to me, come to him with words. And in prayer, we say, I'm a sinner. I am guilty. I cannot forgive my own sin. But you are a great Savior, and you died for my sin, and you rose so that I might live. Would you forgive me? Would you make me your child? I want to come follow Jesus. And in the process, God gives you a new heart so that you are actually born again. And if you've been born again so that you have a living relationship with God through Christ, worship is not dangerous for you. Now, we should always come with awe and reverence. We should always try to be careful to worship God according to His Word. And We should always try to come with our whole heart, right? I I said to one of our team right before the service this morning, I said, Are you ready? And this person said, I will be in five minutes. I gotta get my brain in gear. (laughs) And I thought, Yeah, that's pretty much where all of us are when we come on Sunday mornings, right? How many times in your life do you think you have walked through the doors into gathered worship with your whole heart ready to go i, I 'm probably o for my life on that i don 't know and so as we gather every time we are gathering as a bunch of people who know our whole heart 's not here yet, but we are like we 're like we 've got our arms around each other 's shoulders. <laughs> And we are gathering together to draw near to God together, to move toward wholehearted worship together. And so every one of us brings our challenges. One person comes, and they've been getting knocked all around by sexual temptation all week long, and then they come through these doors. Another person comes, and they've been in terrible pain all week long, and they come through these doors. Another person comes, and he just finished his fantasy football team, and this is NFL, today's not, but NFL week one. And man, when those first games start at 10 o'clock or whatever, he so badly wants to know how his, the players on his team are, are, are doing. And somebody else comes, and they had a huge bill that hit them this week. And so they're like, how are we even going to get through this financially? So we all come with all of the things that could make it hard for us to bring our whole hearts to God but the thing is, we're all in that together. And, our, and God is not in heaven with his arms folded, glaring at us, waiting to pounce on us. We're in Christ, his son. He said, this is my son who, with whom I am well pleased. And so we gather for worship and in Christ, God looks at us and says, I am well pleased with you. And because of that, because of how good he is, because we love him, we say, I am not content with half-hearted worship. I love God too much for that. I want wholehearted worship. So God, would you tune my heart to sing your grace? So half-hearted worship is a common struggle. We come and struggle together for wholehearted worship because we love God. But it's not because we're afraid that God's going to pounce on us if we mess up. We seek wholehearted worship because we love Him. So the great danger isn't half-hearted worship, though if you are perpetually contented with half-hearted worship, that's scary. That raises the question of whether you actually have a heart for worship if you're glad to just barely pay attention to God occasionally. But the great danger is no-hearted worship. All of the worship activities in the world cannot save your soul. You have to be born again. So I think it's appropriate as we, all, as we come to the end of this study of worship for you to be urged to consider whether you truly belong to Christ. It would be horrible for you to sit through an entire sermon series on worship And the whole time you weren't a worshiper because you haven't been born again through Christ. And when the series ends, you're still not a worshiper. And on we go. And you're still separated from God. So you could come to him and be saved today. He does not cast out any who come to him as humble sinners seeking his forgiveness. And I pray that you would. Father, Thank you for sending a great Savior for great sinners. Thank you for taking people who were worshiping idols and turning us into true worshipers through Jesus. Thank you that our acceptance with you is not based on us and our performance, but it's based completely on Christ. Thank you that we can then come and worship in peace and in joy not on edge. Yet we do want wholehearted worship. So help us keep growing. Help us keep learning. Help keep drawing our hearts to you that when we come to worship, our whole mind and will and emotions might come together around your greatness with our church family. And Father, I pray that if there is anyone who has been here through this series that does not yet truly know Christ in a saving way and has not been born again. I pray that you might give to them faith and repentance and new life. Draw them to yourself today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.